Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Amon 4. Here's what's coming up. Biden steps up pressure on Netanyahu, this time sanctioning violent settlers in the West Bank. Former U.S. Middle East negotiator Aaron David Miller joins me. And Ukraine says it sunk a Russian ship as its embattled army chief breaks his silence. We bring you the latest on Kyiv's struggle for survival. Then... I don't see it as a job, really. I still see it as the my hobby that became... This, this dreamland. One of the best tennis players to ever play the game. A look back at Christian's conversation with Roger Federer, 20 years since he first became world number one. Plus, when I tried to be a journalist, they were like, no, you can't do that because we need to attack the Democrats. The MAGA Diaries. Reporter Tina Wynn talks to Hari Srinivasan about her life inside the right wing and why she walked away. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the program. I'm Bianca Goldriga in New York, sitting in for Christiana Amanpour. Well, after weeks of pressuring Israel to scale back military tactics in Gaza, the United States is now turning its attention to the West Bank. The Biden administration issued sanctions against four Israeli settlers for acts of violence there. The State Department accuses one of the men of initiating and leading a riot, which resulted in the death of at least one Palestinian civilian. The United Nations reported a staggering rise in acts of settler threats and violence against Palestinians after October 7th. The Israeli government calls the sanctions wholly unnecessary, with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu saying the overwhelming majority of residents there are law-abiding citizens. Aaron David Miller was a Middle East negotiator for the United States and joins me from Washington for more on this and other subjects in the region. Aaron, it's good to see you. So uh, listen, this was a dramatic step from the U.S. government, no doubt about it, unprecedented. The U.S. government would level sanctions against uh, Israeli individuals. Um, And the timing is interesting and worthy as well, given that it comes just days after uh, members of the prime minister's own cabinet attended an event um, where a conference promoting resettling in Gaza. So this clearly is sending a message, but beyond just the symbolism involved and whatever the repercussions would be for these specific individuals, what else should we make of this? Well, you know, uh, thanks. first of all, thanks for having me on it. You know, there are a lot of motives here. Number one, the uh, president has demonstrated, and we're going about to enter the fifth war- uh, month of this war, February 7, an extraordinary, stunning preternatural support for the state of Israel. That's conviction on his part. It's partly domestic politics, too. And he's been less uh, ready and willing, actually, to take the concerns of, of Palestinians into account. There's no question about that. He demonstrates tremendous empathy toward uh, toward the Israelis, toward the terror surge 
indiscriminate, willful, statistic killing, um, less so with respect to the Palestinians. I think that this is a part of the ongoing effort on, on part of the administration to sort of fill in the frame. Um, and I think it's it's well-intentioned and it's meaning, meaningful. It, you know, the, the expanse of this executive order is extraordinary. Uh, it, it essentially uh, would also include government entities that aid in and abet threats and or actual violence against Palestinians. And it's interesting because of the four Israelis uh, designated, uh, two of them were also charged, not just with intimidating Palestinians, but with intimidating, causing harm to Israelis, Israeli activists in the West Bank as well. So I think this is part of that, that sort of frame. What practical application uh, will it have? Will it essentially uh, um, prevent uh, the policies of an Israeli government, two ministers in particular, that are pursuing policies that are designed to annex the West Bank in in everything but name, I, I, I doubt it. Uh, but it's still a very strong signal um, of, of, of administration intent on this issue, particularly now as they move toward trying to integrate an initiative uh, based uh, at some point in the future on two states. Well, two of those far-right um, members uh, of the government there that you, that you mentioned, or you didn't mention by name, but I will, and that's Bezalel Smotrich, who's the finance minister, and Itamir Ben-Gvir, um, its security uh, minister in the country. And Bezalel Smotrich responded to the news yesterday, and I want to read for our viewers what he wrote on, um, on X. The settler violence campaign is an anti-Semitic lie that enemies of Israel decimate to smear and pioneering settlers in settlement enterprise and to harm them and thus smear the entire state of Israel. I will keep God willing to work fearlessly to strengthen and develop Jewish settlements. If the price is U.S. sanctions against me, so be it. I mean, here he is taking the role of a martyr, um, in a sense. Uh, what pressure does this put on Prime Minister Netanyahu? And how, how big of a hindrance is this really in terms of U.S.-Israeli relations going forward, especially during a war? It's a fascinating question and the right one. Uh, you know, for for Benjamin Netanyahu on trial for bribery, fraud, breach of trust, now three years running in the Jerusalem District Court, I think he's due to testify this month. It's critically important that he maintain himself in power. And critical to that uh, is catering and ably acquiescing in the activities of both uh, Itamar Ben-Gavir and Bezalel Smotrich. They will bolt from this coalition, uh, Ben Gavir in particular. If you look at the polls, he actually stands to gain uh, in the event that there were elections. Bezalel Smotrich, not so much, but Ben Gavir, yes. So there is that threat hanging over Benjamin Netanyahu's head. I doubt, uh, frankly, whether or not this is going to fundamentally alter either Ben Gavir or Smotrich's objectives, Smotrich's objectives when it comes to the West Bank. But it could have a chilling impact. I mean, the United Nations is reporting since October 7th, 500 uh, incidents of settler intimidation and violence, uh, eight um, Palestinians killed, including a child. Uh, so I think this is a significant and serious problem. It will not stop the settlement enterprise, uh, but it does send a signal that the administration is prepared, it seems, to impose some measure of cost uh, and accountability, uh, at least on the most extreme manifestations of settler activities in, um, in the West Bank. 
We're also seeing the ripple effects of the sanctions leveled by the United States just now. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said that Canada is looking to impose sanctions on extremists and settlers in the West Bank as well. Um, this comes as there are reports that the State Department is exploring, possibly recognizing a Palestinian state following the end of the war in Gaza. There are those in Israel that are pushing back against this. And we should note that the State Department itself is downplaying the significance of any of this. I want to quote a statement from Matt Miller, its spokesperson, saying there has been no policy shift in the administration. We have made quite clear publicly that we support the establishment of an independent Palestinian state. But what do you make of even the timing of these reports coming out as it is clear there is a lot of frustration that we do not see any attempt even by this government of Prime Minister Netanyahu's to put together a day after plan. What a two-state solution may look like because, of course, that's the only thing that will lead him to get what he is hoping to achieve, and that is uh, normalization with Saudi Arabia. Yeah, you know, I had my 25 years Department of State, mostly working on Arab-Israeli-Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. I've written uh, several memos, I'm sure, uh, that explore a variety of options, including U.S. recognition unilaterally of a Palestinian state. I don't see that, frankly, as a realistic or practical option for the United States. Uh, if they recognize a Palestinian state, they'd have to recognize precisely where that state is. I can see, however, the administration at some point this spring laying out what I would describe to you as the Biden parameters, which would in effect um, make more specific when the U.S. talks about a Palestinian state, what are they talking about? Based on June 1967 borders with mutually agreeable swaps with East Jerusalem as a capital of a putative Palestinian state. I can see that happening. But as you, uh, but as you point out, um, the key issue here uh, is what is Mr. Netanyahu? who, frankly, ideologically, politically, and practically is opposed to anything uh, remotely acceptable to, uh, to Palestinians, what is he prepared to do? And that remains, a, I think, an open question. The administration clearly is preparing an initiative, and you're right. It has a lot to do with trying to use Israeli-Saudi normalization as an incentive. question is, how much can Mr. Netanyahu's government handle and how risk ready is the prime minister prepared to be uh, in endorsing such a concept? I think we're in for a very uncertain period. The key to all this, Bianca, though, is the negotiations underway led by CIA Director Burns and the head of um, Israel's Mossad, David Barnea, to see whether or not you can get a hostage for prisoner exchange and a de-escalation in Gaza. Without that, all of this talk is, uh, is a thought experiment. Yeah, that's such an important point to make. And listen, no doubt uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is known to be risk averse and a hindrance on this issue of what a day after looks like and the road towards a um, two-state solution at some point. That having been said, the other hindrance here is Hamas. They are still effectively in power. Um, they effectively, you know, they have 136 hostages and they appear to be calling the shots now in terms of what they will and won't agree to in this deal. Um, is enough pressure and attention being put on on bringing this organization, this terror organization, as the U.S. deems them, to an end? And this goes beyond, I'm asking, even just releasing these hostages, which is the most pressing issue right now. 
I mean, that is really, you've identified, you broke the code here. That's that's a critically important point. The senior leadership of Hamas continues to be ensconced in tunnels, probably near Rafa or near Khan Yunus. Uh, the three key architects and implementers of the October 7 terror surge are alive and presumably well. Hamas may have uh, 15,000 fighters, um, perhaps more. And the real key question seems to me is when all this is over, even with a hostage for, hostage for prisoner exchange, Hamas may well remain as a sort of rump organization capable of influencing directly the economy and the politics of Gaza. And with almost no legitimacy, the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas now 88 in the 19th year of a four-year term, controls 40% of the West Bank, undermined by his own corruption and autocratic tendencies and by Israeli policies. Who exactly is going to be the legitimizing agent to bring Palestinian governance to Gaza? And right now, um, the most credible Palestinian organization, probably in the eyes of Gazans and certainly in the eyes of, of many West Bankers, is Hamas, a terror organization, the organizational embodiment of an idea, which is the destruction of the state of Israel. I'm not sure we've factored in to the analysis in the quote unquote day after scenario what role Hamas is still likely to play, either intimidating Palestinians or exercising uh, significant influence. So I think this is just one of the many, many uncertainties that the administration is gonna be dealing with in the, in the months ahead. And final question, um, and I don't know that it's one that you can answer right now, but in terms of what Hamas wants and what the U.S., what many Israelis, what many in the region want, and that is a path towards a two-state solution with a Palestinian state and an Israeli state living safely side by side, that's divergent from what Hamas wants. Hamas does not want a two-state solution. So even in the interim, when you have 136 hostages being held, if you have others pressing for a two-state solution right now as a way to end this war, how does Hamas respond to that? Uh, well, I think uh, Hamas uh, wants a, a Palestinian state, but they want uh, it to be an Islamic state, and they want it to replace the state of Israel. Um, they are not capable of implementing and producing that outcome, uh, but they are in the divided, polarized, dysfunctional world of Palestinian politics without the kind of leadership capable of making decisions. They are still likely to carry a significant amount of influence. I, I don't think, frankly, that anyone has a solution right now, Bianca, to the to the problematic challenge of Palestinian governance. That's going to be key, but let me make one final point. You're gonna be dealing with two incredibly traumatized communities in the wake of this war, uh, led by two individuals, Benjamin Netanyahu on one hand and Mahmoud Abbas on the other, who are much more interested in keeping their seats yeah. rather than on taking historic decisions to create the environment for such a negotiation that might produce two states. So it's going to be a long, a very long and bumpy road. And I think we need to keep our expectations, particularly in an election year, one of the most consequential elections in American history. We need to keep our expectations on this one under control.
And sadly, expectations are already pretty low at this point. I mean, you know, people just begging for these hostages to come home and for the fighting and the suffering in Gaza to come to an end as well. Um, Aaron David Miller, thank you. Thank you, Vienna. Well, at least 17,000 children in Gaza are unaccompanied or separated from their parents. This is according to UNICEF. In central Gaza, the mother of a six-year-old Palestinian girl is desperate to know what happened to her. She was trapped in a car on Monday after she and other members of her family came under Israeli fire. This is according to the Palestinian Red Crescent Society. Jamana Karachi has the details and a warning. Some viewers may find parts of her report disturbing. A desperate call for help from six-year-old Hind, terrified, trapped in a car. Everyone around her is dead. Hind was in the car with her uncle, his wife, and their four children, trying to flee fighting from this part of northern Gaza. The horror in that car captured in this call for help from her cousin, recorded by the Palestine Red Crescent. Relatives on Monday morning received a call from the family saying they'd come under Israeli military fire. Rahad called me. She said, Uncle, my dad, my mum, my sister and brother were killed. I'm bleeding. Help me. I'm dying. I told her, tie yourself with anything. At 4 p.m. she died. The only one left was the little girl, Hind. She said, please, I'm little, I'm injured, I peed myself. Hind stayed on the phone with the Red Crescent for hours. What time is it? She said it's getting dark. I'm afraid of the dark. The area was too dangerous, hard to reach. They had to keep Hind on the phone as they scrambled to try and get a team to her. As a team was finally dispatched, a psychologist was now on the phone with Hind. But days later, they're still waiting. The Red Crescent lost all contact with Hind and its two volunteers who were dispatched to find her. CNN gave the Israeli military details about the incident, including coordinates provided by the Palestine Red Crescent. The IDF says, quote, we are unfamiliar with the incident described. We are extremely worried. We need to know what happened. Did they manage to save Hand? Are they arrested? Did they survive? We need answers. No one more desperate for answers than Hin's distraught mother. If my daughter didn't die from the bullets, she is going to die from the cold, from the hunger. My daughter said, Mama, I am hungry. She said, Mama, I am thirsty. I'm cold. I call on the whole world to bring me back my daughter. I want anyone to call the army. We want our innocent little girl. Hind is too young to be going through this. She is too young. So many, so young, gone in this war. But one family holds on to the hope that it's not too late to save their little Hind. We all hope that six-year-old Hind can be found safely.
want to thank Jamana Karachi for that report. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. We want to turn now to Ukraine and a brand new exclusive, the embattled army chief writing a letter to CNN that Kyiv must adapt to a reduction in Western military support if it stands any chance of beating Russia. Valery Zaluzhny is speaking out amidst a swirl of rumors surrounding his future and reports that President Zelensky may be poised to dismiss him after four years on the job. This while Ukraine claims that it sunk a Russian ship off the coast of Crimea. Here to discuss all of this is Yaroslav Trofimov. He is the Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent and author of Our Enemies Will Vanish. Welcome back to the program from Brussels. Uh, Yaroslav, this whole week I've been chasing you to, to have you on because there have been so many developments in this war and you are the perfect person to talk to about it all. First, just get your response to this rather stunning and um, blunt assessment of the state of the war from its top general, Valery Zaluzhny, before he's expected, widely expected, to be replaced. Well, indeed, General Zaluzhny painted a, uh, a very realistic picture of the war. He said uh, that Ukraine needs time to regroup. And that Ukraine needs to uh, Ukraine needs to focus on uh, some of the most difficult issues, such as uh, replenishing the shortfall of manpower, uh, ammunition, and also uh, on the drone revolution, uh, the usage of drones that, uh, according to him and many other officials in Ukraine, are really a secret sauce uh, for Ukrainian military operations. And uh, President Zelensky just today had a meeting of the Ukrainian High Command, the so-called Stavka, that uh, reunites top generals and ministers and other officials, and he himself, uh, with Zaluzhna present there, again reaffirmed these priorities, uh, increasing the ammunition production in Ukraine as Western aid, especially American aid, uh, uh, shrunk, uh, and also uh, focusing on drone and drone production, which really has been uh, a very powerful weapon uh, for the Ukrainian military. Yeah, he said we must contend with a reduction in military support from key allies, grappling with their own political tensions, obviously a topic we've been spending a lot of time discussing. And he goes on to say it is well known by now that a central driver of this war is the development of unmanned weapon systems, uh, drones being front and center, obviously much more affordable relative to some of the larger armaments uh, fought in a traditional war and much more nimble as well. He also focused on technology and he said, quote, attack operations can have psychological objectives. And here technology boasts an undoubted superiority over tradition. The remote control of these assets means fewer soldiers in harm's way, thus reducing the level of human losses. Is he right to focus on this given the huge toll this war has taken on Ukrainian soldiers? Is there an effective way to shift to technology 
to limit the number of losses on the battlefield? I think it's very important, and Ukraine has shown um, that it can use this technology. And, and I've spent much of the past two years on the front lines, and I've seen myself uh, going uh, with Ukrainian drone operators just how much damage they can inflict uh, uh, to the Russians uh, with this sometimes very cheap uh, drones, uh, many of them made in Ukraine by Ukrainian companies. And uh, doing that uh, from a distance that is safe enough often to preserve their own lives. And it's not just aerial drones. I mean, the ship that was uh, sunk uh, uh, two days ago, the Russian warship, a missile cruiser, was sunk by Ukrainian naval drones, also un unmanned uh, naval, uh, um, basically, ships. Uh, uh, and uh, there is one other crucial point. The Western weapons given to Ukraine are not allowed to be used on Russian territory. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so Ukraine, as it tries to strike Russian uh, military facilities, logistical facilities inside Russia, very often quite far away, all the way to St. Petersburg, is using its own drones uh, to do that. And that's a, it's a critical way of establishing a deterrence against Russia, which she's been striking all across Ukraine with its own missiles and drones. So that speaks to rumors of this changing of the guard here. On the one hand, it's not completely out of the ordinary to see something like this, especially when a war has been going on for as long as this war has, now approaching two years. Um, that said, we know that Zaluzhny is very popular in Ukraine, and there is some tension between President Zelensky and Zaluzhny that's been out in the open now for months. In terms of who could replace him, two names have surfaced, and that is Kirill Budanov. He is the defense Defense Intelligence Directorate, one of the men, very young, we should note, who has been quite successful in launching some of these operations and really holding Russia on its heels in the Black Sea and even launching, as you noted, some of these attacks deep inside Russia, which has raised some eyebrows in the United States. The other name, more traditional, and that would be Alexander Sirsky, and he is the current commander of Ukrainian ground forces. From your sources and what you're hearing, who do you think is more positioned? or more likely to be getting this job? Well, I'll start off by saying that General Zaluzhny is very, very popular in the ranks. And uh, whenever I would come to a town or a village that was liberated by Ukrainian forces, the first thing that would happen, the troops would stencil a portrait of Zaluzhny on the walls, not the portrait of President Zelensky. Uh, it's not clear when and whether he will be replaced. Zaluzhny took part in today's meeting of the uh, high command and was no reference in President Zelensky's statement to his dismissal. Uh, if you look at these two possible contenders, and by no means the only ones, I think a lot of people inside the military, in the ranks, have uh, reservations against uh, General Sirsky, the commander of ground forces. He's seen by many as all too willing uh, to sacrifice lives in sometimes uh, sort of very traditionally planned attacks. Uh, at a time where lives of Ukrainian soldiers are the most precious and, and irreplenishable resource. Uh, as for uh, General Budanov, he has certainly carried out very risky operations. Uh, not all of them were successful. You know, there was, and I describe it in, in detail in the book, there was a failed operation to retake uh, Snake Island uh, uh, in the middle of 2022 uh, that led to severe losses among Ukrainian troops, uh, and that was sort of hushed up at the time. Uh, so. Uh, for now, all we know is Aluzhny remains at the helm of the military, and it's really not clear if and when he will be removed. 
Um, Rob Lee, a military analyst who is uh, well-regarded, somebody who, who you know, um, tweeted this today. He said, Ukraine faces two acute issues right now, lack of ammunition and lack of infantry. The longer these two issues are not properly addressed, the more Ukrainians are disadvantaged and the more, you, the more that disadvantage will grow. And these two seem to go hand in hand, but there are conflicting, um, uh, I don't know, advocacies for both, especially when it comes to manpower, because it, it is General Zeluzhny who is calling for more, whereas uh, President Zelensky, understandably, as uh, the president of a country, knows how unpopular that may be. But you could also make the argument, could you not, that without more ammunition, more artillery ammunition, you're just throwing these men out to fodder and uh, they could become cannon fodder, just like we've seen in Russia. So how critical is this $60 billion in aid for more ammunition, more weaponry from the U.S. that is still stuck in Congress. It's absolutely critical. It's not just the issue of money. You know, the European Union is also providing money. Just yeah. yesterday, the European Union approved 50 billion euros. That's almost 60 billion dollars uh, in aid to Ukraine. But the Europeans don't have enough ammunition. The European uh, rules don't allow so far the EU to buy ammunition outside of the EU. And it's the US that really has those artillery shells uh, and, the, uh, and the stockpiles that could really be of great importance uh, to Ukrainian forces that are right now outgunned because Russia has been procuring about a million shells from North Korea. Russia's own military industry is working day and night. And Russia once again has this advantage in the battlefield when it comes to artillery, which does result in increased Ukrainian casualties. And, and exactly just like you said, you know, taps into this issue of manpower for Ukraine. Yeah, it's interesting how we go from saying Russia is defeated to now all of a sudden Russia um, is in the driver's seat at this point and that's the, its economy is expected to grow faster. It's relying more on um, delivery of ammunition from North Korea that's coming in quicker than even some from the West. But that having been said, it's not all uh, doom and gloom for Ukraine either. I mean, Russia still faces uh, a lot of headwinds going into this year. Well, let's say the map. Let's look at the map. Uh, Russia has been on the offensive for the last, let's say, three months at least, and, and it has had this advantage for the last three months, and yet it has not been able to gain any significant ground. Not a single town in Ukraine has fallen so far, and uh, Ukrainian troops are, are f formidable in the resistance. So it's not going to be easy for Russia to advance, but uh, any delay in, in the supply of ammunition, especially, is translated directly into higher and higher Ukrainian casualties. And Russia obviously has a lot more people uh, to begin with, and it's much easier for a regime like Vladimir Putin's to just keep throwing uh, manpower, essentially cannon fodder, into this meat grinder uh, that the Ukrainian battlefield has become. Yaroslav Trofimov, thank you so much as always for your time and analysis. Thank you. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts.
We turn next to the world of sports, which this week crowned a new tennis champion in 22-year-old Italian Yannick Sinner, the Australian Open. Now, it was the first men's Grand Slam final in Melbourne since 2005, not to feature Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic, or Roger Federer. Well, that's almost two decades of domination by those tennis legends. Indeed, on this day 20 years ago, Federer became world number one for the very first time. The Swiss superstar began his record-breaking reign, winning 20 Grand Slams and earning a reputation as one of the greatest players of all time before retiring in the fall of 2022. An emotional farewell for fans and players alike. Just look at him in this picture with Nadal. Well, Christian interviewed Federer during the 2015 Wimbledon tournament and asked him how he managed to stay on top of his game for so long. Roger Federer, welcome to our program. Thank you very much. Do you have another Grand Slam title in you? I think so. You know, I really do. Uh, I've won four titles this year. I came close last year, five sets here uh, against Novak, semis at the US Open. So I know I can do it, you know. It's just that some guys just uh, are really playing very well in some moments. And that's where I also have to elevate my game and play my very best. Because anything other than not playing your best uh, against the best when they're hot, it's not going to do it. Who has been your toughest opponent ever? Probably Nadal, just because of his um, playing style, um, that he's a lefty as well, has made things uh, more complicated. <clears throat> Plus, we've had a lot of matches on clay where he's, you know, he reigns supreme, uh, he's the best ever on clay, uh, hands down. So um, he's, been, he's been the toughest, but also maybe, probably the most challenging and most fun to play against just because of his character and uh, he's been unbelievable for the game so uh, you know I've, I've loved our rivalry. New generation and you're still going as we've discussed you're 33 years old they might call you the old man of, of, of the okay. tour but <laughs> you're still proving that you can do it. How do you still do it? You know not just your skill but the discipline, the fitness, the fact that Rafa has been you know injured several times right. and you've managed somehow to play in a way that's allowed you to keep playing this long. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I definitely think I've been somewhat lucky as well to stay injury-free because you can always get unlucky and break something, tear something, and that just goes with, uh, you know, this just happens, you know. So for me, um, I've never had to have surgery. I've never had an injection to uh, having to play painkillers. Fine, I've had to do that. But other than that, you know, it's been very much focused on, you know, um, healthy lifestyle, um, enjoying the traveling, the practice, the matches, having the right team around yourself. My wife's obviously been the rock, you know, behind it all. She's been with me throughout my first title until today. So she's clearly been incredibly important. So just looking at all these things, um, I've done probably uh, taken a lot of right decisions along the way. Mirka, your wife, you met at the mm -hmm. Sydney Olympics in 2000. Yeah. She was a player herself and had to retire, I suppose, because of injury. Exactly, yeah. You've got her on the team with you, and you've got now two sets of twins basically on your team and traveling with you. <laughs> Is it good for, the, for, for your psyche? Does it distract you? Does it sustain you? I mean, I would be unhappy on the tour without them, you know, and then I would retire. So for me, um, it only works this way, and I'm totally happy also not to play anymore, but I prefer it this way, and as long as my wife in particular and also the kids can manage it and actually enjoy it because they, at the end of the day it's supposed to be something we enjoy doing um, it allows me to keep playing and uh, my wife 
is so happy and eager for me to be happy and successful still on, on the talks this year. They love, you know, traveling to all these places now that they got to know. That's the only life they know, really, on the tour. And they've gotten to have so many friends now as well everywhere. So it's unbelievably exciting. And of course, it's good for my mind, you know, to um, when I come back from a match and I've lost and they're there and they don't care if you've won or you've lost. It's, it's great, but I don't need it as a balance. I've, I'm a very relaxed person on and off the court but clearly it's been a dream come true for me to have, have four kids with Mirka it's, it's been wonderful. You seem to have this equanimity about you mm. losing doesn't put you into some kind of vortex of despair. Andy Murray's mother has been quoted as saying when he lost to you in 2012 here he was right. desperate and sad and, and weeping for right. days. It affects some people but it doesn't seem to affect you. Um, not so much, you know, I, I agree. I, I think I used to be so emotional when I was younger that um, I learned from that. I cried too often when I was younger, all the way from, I'd say, eight to about 20. It was unbelievable emotional years for me. Every time I lost, I would basically cry. So even as a pro, sometimes on court, sometimes I could manage to get off the court and then break down, which was better. But uh, eventually, you know, I got my act together and uh, now I take it like a man and five minutes later I'm, I'm fine again. Of course I'm also disappointed that I have to either wait a year until Wimbledon rolls around or till the next Olympic comes around, you know, it takes four years but yeah. it just it goes with the territory. You can't win them all but what you can do is give it all you have and once you have no regrets I think you can accept losses also a little bit easier. I'm fascinated by what you say because so many children these days seem to be so pressured, weeping on court, mm. having tempers, whatever. And you say you had a bit of that. Yeah, I did have that. But you had parents who didn't push you to excess. No, I mean, the thing is, you know, I think we were very uh, realistic about my chances. I, we didn't believe that I was going to be a successful professional tennis player, maybe a successful junior in a, on a local or national level. Yes, fine, but not internationally really competing at Wimbledon to win, you know, so for the, my parents were very much just strict in the sense that, you know, it's supposed to be a privilege to go to practice and go to matches on the weekends, so please put in your best effort, just like for us, you know, because it does cost money and it's our time, otherwise we'd rather spend it with your sister or with our friends, you know, and you do things at home around the house. So I got to that message eventually and I understand very clearly what she meant because I have kids of my own now. And of course, when you put in the effort, you at least would like your kids to, to give in their best effort as well. Billie Jean King, obviously the greatest champion yeah. and a huge Wimbledon, you know, record holder. She has likened you to Baryshnikov or Nureyev in that you have this balletic quality <laughs> about what you do. Obviously, they hung up their ballet shoes. Do you ever feel that it's time to hang up the tennis shoes or oh, the yeah. racket? I mean, hopefully never, really, you know, but maybe um, on a professional level, you have to eventually because the body or the mind will just say, you know what, it's been great, but uh, let's do other things in life as well um, because it's only a short span of your life, but let's make the most of it. Um, but and then I hope I still play for fun, you know, with my friends, with my kids, with my wife in the future. So I'll, I'll never probably really retire, but uh, the day will come and I'll be totally happy probably doing that as well. Is it still fun? Yeah, no, I don't see it as a job, really. I still see it as the my hobby that became this this dreamland I can move about you know um, like I explained for me it was never uh, uh, I'd never dreamed this far in my dreams yeah. to be this professional tennis player so of course going to the gym and going to work out 
yeah, I would I'd rather do other things at times, but at the end of the day, I know why I'm doing it, because I love playing on center court, I love traveling the world, and uh, yeah, I make a lot of sacrifice to make it all work, and I love doing what I'm doing, so I never saw it as a job per se, to be, to be quite honest. Roger Federer, mm -hmm. thank you very much indeed. Okay, my pleasure, thank you. Well, proof that even the great Roger Federer is mortal. A year after that interview, Federer's injury-free streak ended. He suffered knee damage that led to his retirement ultimately in 2022. But with more than 1,500 matches played in 24 years, Roger Federer's tennis legacy will live on forever. To think he did it just for fun. Well, we turn now to American politics, where our next guest was drawn to the conservative movement as a college student. But after internships and jobs that centered around right-wing talking points, she left that world behind. Tina Wynn is a journalist at Puck and details her political journey in her new book, The MAGA Diaries. She speaks to Hari Srinivasan about it. Tina Wynn, thanks so much for joining us. Your book is called The MAGA Diaries, uh, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. First, um, <laughs> how do you become a MAGA person? Because as most of us are prone to stereotypes, they're going to say this doesn't look like your traditional hardcore Trump conservative. Oh, absolutely not. Just look at me. I'm a woman of color with refugee parents who grew up in Boston. Like it makes it should make no sense. Uh, but for me, my journey into conservative world, as it were, came from two factors, which was one, my parents may have been intelligent and they may have somehow got me to a private school and a scholarship, but they did not know how American society worked. They did not know how to get jobs. They did not know how to build connections. It was just a totally foreign system for them. Uh, and then the second factor was that I was a big geek about the founding fathers. Like you grow up in Boston, you're surrounded by the Revolutionary War at every corner. You're just like, imbued with the ideals of the American founding. And the moment I come across this school that is one, very career oriented, and two, literally has these research institutions that are studying the founding fathers and individual freedom and the ideas of liberty. You're just kind of like, oh, okay, yes, let's, let's do this. And then there is a community that you go into. And that was my entrance into the broader conservative mo movement, which is just this vast, I guess, loosely connected network of interest groups, activist groups, politicians who all are part of this cultural, not like cultural conservatism, but a culture of being conservative for a living. Uh, the goal is to get conservatives into all aspects of American civic life, um, the law, um, the elected system, activists on the ground, maybe people in the administration, uh, lobbyists, what have you, and see these ideas into legislation, into culture, and then watch them pay off maybe decades down the road. Now, it does read a bit like a diary. I mean, you really kind of start out about how you kind of went to the college that you went to, sort of chasing a boy that was a conservative. And how did kind of what you experienced in college translate into the first few jobs you got writing for the publications that you were writing, covering the conservative movement? I wanted to be a journalist pretty badly. And 
I was looking for internships in the summer of 2009, right at the height of the recession. And this opportunity pops up in our conservative jobs email list called at the Institute for Humane Studies, where they're looking for students who want a paid internship in journalism, as long as they're liberty minded, which was the exact phrase they used. And I applied for it. I got it. And they're like, cool, here's your money. But you also have to come to these seminars where we'll you get to hang out with all of these other students who are interested in the same things that you are. And we're going to talk about, you know, maybe um, the Affordable Care Act is like anti-free market. I don't know why the media is not talking about that. When September rolls around, I get invited to the official mentorship program. The guy who runs that program says, I am going to be your mentor. I am going to get you jobs and help you write your resume and connect you with people. And as I left college, though, I started noticing that this mentor was connecting me with groups that were increasingly less focused on journalism and more focused on putting out news that had a really intense partisan tilt to the point where they just like decontextualized what it was they wanted me to write for the sake of making a political point. So, you know, this could have been a book about someone that was young getting into the Republican Party and finding her conservative roots. But what is the difference between, I guess, the Republican Party of 25 years ago and some of the people that you talk to and interact with in the book who are from that era and the MAGA movement specifically? The conservative movement did not have an immune system against populism, I think. They had this large infrastructure that had spawned from the movement, but I, but they were pretty firmly of the belief that they believe that like they supported free markets, um, religious rights, anti-abortion, but that the Republican voter base wanted the same as well. And then the moment that Donald Trump comes in and the base is like, actually, we would like populism very much. The movement was like, all right, do we stick to our guns and try to promote a belief that is increasingly unpopular or do we pivot to meet these voters where they are uh we pivot trump to where he to trump where he is because now he's the leader of our party in the free world um in order to maintain not just our power or our money cynically but like the reason that we've done what we've done for 25 to 30 years uh one of the things i keep noticing in the book over and over again was that people who left in response to Trumpism were immediately just out. They like their friends disavowed them, their colleague, their institutions fired them. They no longer had jobs. And I was looking at the progressive movement for a while and it's like, this doesn't really happen over here. That's so weird. So what is it about sort of Trump's force singularly that was able to galvanize not just disaffected voters in the Rust Belt, but young conservatives as well. I mean, you talk about the places that were looking for a leader like him. College conservatism is always predicated on the belief that there is liberal institutions on campus, liberal academia, trying to push a certain view of the world down your throat. And you need to resist against that indoctrination. And that's only increased in subsequent years, especially due to 
the rise in online media being able to like out you if you kind of step outside the line of what is considered acceptable on college campuses. And so even though there are all these loud protests on college campuses about like Israel versus Gaza, the really deep tension that college students face is if I say something out loud, will I be canceled and ostracized? And will people literally throw eggs at my face whenever they see me? And just because you're not expressing your pro-Trump views and wandering around with a MAGA hat, doesn't necessarily mean you're not going to go inside the voting booth and pull the lever for Trump. Right now, in almost every kind of political conversation or debate, what you notice very quickly is that the right is much better than the left when it comes to messaging marching orders, singing from the same hymnal, call it whatever you like. And I wonder, can you diagram how that works? It's purely reactionary. Um, Conservatism as just a general American philosophy and idea, one of the texts that they always draw from is Edmund Burke, philosopher from the late 1800s. And his entire, and most of his writing focused on the concept that society if it moves forward too quickly, will lead to ruin. But fast forward to now, the idea that they have marching orders from one person, I think is false. I think what it ha- what happens is, is that there's a deep-seated fear of what change looks like. And it's automatically very easy, if not instinctual, to be like, no, we don't like that. No, this is bad. No, we will do whatever it takes to stop that. That's not hard to coordinate. That's incredibly easy to just get on the same page. How does the conservative movement or the MAGA movement in America find themselves in any way victims when you look at the tremendous amount of power that exists, for example, in the Supreme Court or lots of other avenues of society where it's at best 50-50? Look, just because they have formal power doesn't necessarily mean that they have absolute power. The Supreme Court, even though they have control over the Supreme Court, doesn't necessarily mean they know exactly how these justices are going to be voting. A bunch of the right-wing judges are not necessarily conservative or MAGA justices. Uh, Clarence Thomas, I think, is sort of his own weird little thing. Um, Roberts is kind of independent from all of that. The and then, of course, there's the existence of the liberal judges. So they have seats. They don't necessarily have control. One of the things I've written about recently at Puck is the idea that the Trump administration is being built and like waiting so they can specifically go in on day one and knock out everyone who had opposed the Trump agenda during the first administration Uh, purging, quote unquote, the deep state that had worked to either stop what they were trying to do or roll it back or whatever stood in the way. When did you feel like you were perhaps out of step with the movement or when did you find your beliefs changing? The covenant that they broke with me was that they said I could be a journalist And then when I tried to be a journalist, they were like, no, you can't do that because we need to attack the Democrats. And that was just such a violation for me personally. I still 
really like the founding fathers. I still believe in the American ideal. I worry that we'll never be able to achieve it because we're humans. But the idea that this institution was asking me to deliberately like decontextualize the truth or take an angle or like in some cases outright lie under the guise of being a journalist was just like, I can't do this. I just cannot. There was one point in December 2011, um, and I write about this, that I'm on my second job interview and there's this group called the Franklin Institute that's looking for a stringer in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm like, okay, that's cool. I'd love to report out of um, Wisconsin. And then they started asking me to specifically muckrake on teachers unions. And this is around the time that Scott Walker and the teachers unions are having this massive battle. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. I, I No, no, this is bad. I can't do this. You know, the irony is, is that these are some of the very critiques that conservatives hurl against what they perceive as liberal media bias, that reporters automatically have an axe to grind, that they're out to muckrake or that decontextualize the truth. I think there's a difference, and this is just from my point of view, between like growing up with a specific view of the world, going through specific journalistic institutions in order to get credentialed and slip through the door and then become a New York Times reporter, for instance, then there is being part of a formal, well-funded movement that is meant to specifically insert conservative ideas into the media. Um, in this, in my case, under the guise of being a journalist, like I think there's a difference between being conservative media reporters, um, a whole separate issue in and of itself, but then also being asked to twist the truth while pretending to be a journalist. You were writing at Politico, and a few days before January 6th, uh, I want to read the headline for your piece, and it said, MAGA leaders call for the troops to keep Trump in office. A growing call to invoke the Insurrection Act shows how hard-edged MAGA ideology has become in the wake of Trump's election loss. What were your editors thinking after January 6th? January 6th was just a hard thing for people to wrap their heads around. But I had been pitching so often these stories of like, here are these MAGA people coming into Washington. They are willing to use violence. They have violent ideology in their back pocket. And they truly believe that if the government is being taken over, they have the right as sovereign citizens to take up arms. And I think over time, there's this really weird tension between them being like, okay, you were right. But then also editors having this inability to recognize weight know what you're reporting on is still true. It's still so far outside of what we believe to be true that we just can't accept it. That piece I wrote was sort of the precursor to the piece I pitched for January 6th, which was, I want to report on people who have gone to the Capitol to uh, try to harass lawmakers as they enter the building. And when I got there, this wasn't so much a crowd that really was like whipped up into a frenzy so much as it was a crowd that did truly believe that the Capitol belonged to them and that they should be let through the barriers in order to tell the lawmakers to their face what to do. Um, a little bit nerve wracking, a little bit scary, but I was like, all right, this makes sense. 
And then I met a proud boy for the first time. And he just kind of started hinting at like, oh, we've got a plan for today. We've got this totally cool plan. We're going to see how the day like wraps up. Do you see any blind spots heading into 2024, similar to those blind spots that you discuss in the book about maybe how the press didn't understand what was happening with the Trump movement the first time around? Um, are there things that we're still not getting? I think it seems to be hard for people to wrap their heads around the idea that minorities could be pro-Trump. Like, Vietnamese Americans are extremely pro-Trump. I think they major like a majority of them do vote for Trump, but the growth in Hispanic voters going for Trump, um, Asian Americans, possibly more black voters this time around to a surprising degree. And it does come from a place where they just cannot simply accept that racism does not necessarily mean oh, I'm looking at the color of your skin and your background, you don't belong here, whatever. It is the idea that someone's putting their scale on the thumb of who gets power, who gets jobs, who gets access, and tilting it towards underserved, undeserving minorities. Uh, but if you were to go to a working class, like middle class, maybe not kind of maybe upper middle class household um, of a non-white, American, they'd be like, socialism really scary. A lot of us escaped socialist countries and our entire livelihoods and lives were destroyed in the name of socialism. People are coming from across the border. Uh, we went around this the proper way. How dare Biden let them in now and they're bringing in crime and we had to jump through hoops in order to prove that we were good American citizens. And they love being in America. And the idea that like someone could take away that stability for them is like deeply traumatizing. The book is called The MAGA Diaries, My Surreal Adventures Inside the Right Wing and How I Got Out. Author Tina Wen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And finally, a story that's had us all in a flap of sorts. The release of a bird of interest in India after an eight-month detention. Now, this pigeon, suspected of espionage, yes, espionage, was freed this week after rings that appear to have Chinese writing on them were found tied to its legs in May. Now, it turns out it's just an open-water racing bird that had escaped from Taiwan. And now it can happily live out its life free as a bird. Glad we figured that caper out. Well, that is it for now. If you ever miss our show, you can find the latest episode shortly after it airs on our podcast. And remember, you can always catch us online and on our website and all over social media. Thank you so much for watching and goodbye from New York. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. 
Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.